from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to subscribe to the free email newsletter to get the latest episode direct to your mailbox every Tuesday. On today's show, I have a writer with a penchant for haunted houses. She develops rich atmospheres and dynamic characters in a potent blend that sucks you in. She's joining me today to talk about her debut novel, The Suffering. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of MJ Mars. MJ, welcome to the show. Hi, Vince. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 17th day of June 2023. Your book, The Suffering, was recommended to me by Andrew Nyberg, and I was pleasantly surprised to find a novel that brought me back to my younger days, complete with the mystery of a haunted house, a complex historical narrative, and some well-placed graphic violence. So I really enjoyed it, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm so glad you liked it. And uh, yeah, I'm glad it had the sort of nostalgia thing for you as well. That's, That's always nice to hear. Absolutely. Well, so The Suffering is about a group of college kids that all live together in an old Victorian townhome that's part of the family heritage of a young man named Kyle who rents rooms to his friends for cheap. And in the distant past, his many, many times removed Uncle Lucius, who had psychic abilities, was asked to raise the spirits of some very unsavory characters in a seance within the confines of the house. So... Kyle decides that he wants to conduct his own seance to see if he can communicate with the spirits through a Ouija board. And the seance does not end well, and that's where all of the drama begins. So, do you have a special affinity for stories involving haunted houses and maybe even going to haunted houses on Halloween? And if so, can you tell us about it? Absolutely, yeah. Like, I've always really enjoyed haunted house stories, haunted house movies, and like you say, go into them if I can. <laughs> um, you know, it's just such a great thing to read and write and to just get stuck in with 
what's going on in the house because I think it's like the ultimate fear, isn't it, to just have the place where you're supposed to feel most relaxed and, you know, most comfortable and safe. Just and it's not because there's these things there and you know, you can't really do anything about it necessarily. So yeah, they always say like write what you want to read. And I was missing a, a good old fashioned kind of ghost story. So that's what brought that on. And then yeah, as far as going and uh, exploring haunted houses and things at Halloween time, um I live in Lancaster, so there's always something going on at Lancaster UK. Um, so we've had like the Pendle Witch Trials that have been quite famous from the past and, you know, the big castle that's got a lot of haunted history to it. So yeah, we always have a good time at Halloween. Yeah, that's a good point. You're supposed to be safe and secure in your home from the crazy outside world, but then the safe and secure home is haunted by malevolent spirits. Yeah. So how have things been post COVID as far as haunted houses? Are there haunted houses open back up that you can still go to or are people still leery of stuff like that? No, yeah, sure. There's been a couple this last uh, couple of years. So they always have a massive one in Liverpool, which isn't very far away from us. They have like a Oh, it's like a like haunted hayride kind of thing, which we don't see much of in the UK. I know it's like sort of taken from you guys and stolen, <laughs> um, but it's it's a lot of fun just going out into the fields and having people chasing you with the chainsaws and things like that. It's great. Oh God, I went to uh, Alice Cooper's Nightmare and it, it was in a mall and the haunted house was great, all the special effects. But at the end, you walk out and you're in the parking lot of the mall. So of course. <laughs> It's over, right? No, there's like this box with a curtain that some guy with a chainsaw is in. And as soon as you walk out, they've got it set up to where if he grinds it onto the ground like a parking block or something, it fires out sparks. I'm like six foot two. I just about climbed on my friend's back. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds excellent. It's like, yeah. um, remember that was it resident evil 4 at the beginning where uh -huh. you're just having to walk around the village and there's a guy with a chainsaw just coming at you constantly <laughs> it was a bit like that <laughs> yeah it was my living nightmare <laughs> yeah <laughs> well so the story about the seance and the multifaceted spirits that they were attempting to reach was very detailed and unique is this based at all on any historical event and people and if so can you tell us about it yeah, I mean, the story itself, not in particular. I didn't research any kind of, you know, seance or any kind of psychic in particular for a basis for the story. But I mean, a lot of the ghosts have sort of come from different periods in history. So there's a Hellfire Club member. So it was fun to do the research mm. on them and all the crazy things that they got up to. Lisa Vaughan, who she's based in Lancaster, as I said, where I live. And that came about because I was on a, one of the walking tours of Lancaster and they were talking about St. George's Quay and they used to bring the ships with all of the trade and all the sailors. And there'd be sort of houses just next to the quay where people would entertain the sailors that came in. So I just thought, what a fun thing if the sailors are coming in, getting entertained by these ladies, you know, not just fun nighttime ladies, but yeah, also yeah. sirens know, of the night. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Palm readers and things like that. So they just kind of, you know, anyone who wanted to sort of apply a bit of trade, entertaining the lads when they came in off the sea, would go there. And I just, it, it kind of sparked something that I just thought that's a really interesting 
place to imagine and the stuff that went on there. So I had a lot of fun with that. And Peru as well, like uh, going into Poe, the big giant story. And, you know, they have sort of like they touch on the fact that some of the monuments that are unexplained over there may have been made by him because he was like enslaved and sort of made to do all these things because he's so huge. Um, and so there was a bit like quite a lot of sort of research, but nothing in particular for a particular person who's based on a real person, unfortunately. I'd have loved for Poe to have been real because he's a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, the main character, Kyle, seems to be the most reasonable, level-headed member of the group. I think every group of friends has that, like the voice of reason. (laughs) Yeah, sure. But so why was he so dead set on doing something that maybe he didn't think it was reckless, but objectively it ends up being pretty reckless? Well, I think the thing with Kyle is that he's, got this connection to Lucius and so he's constantly you know thinking about his ancestor and what he might have been like and the fact that this haunted house has got such a history behind it and his connection to someone in his family makes him sort of stumble blindly into recreating this seance in honor of his ancestor kind of thing and then like you say so practical such a fact finder I think he's so driven to get the answers that it just kind of you know takes away that sensibleness in those moments because he just is so keen to get to the truth and find out exactly what really happened and what happened to Lucius and uh, it just makes him do these crazy things <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that connection with lucia lucius am i pronouncing mm-hmm. that right lucius or lucius yeah yeah absolutely lucius, either way lucius. yeah okay. either way potato potato <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right well you alluded to him earlier the satanist anthony Pyle was one of the most interesting characters because of his involvement with the hellfire club which i actually have some previous knowledge of i think it was Francis Dashwood and mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin was purported to, I don't know if he was technically a member, but to have participated in some of their activities. Definitely, so, um, yeah. yeah. What kind of uh, research did you do on the Hellfire Club? And have you ever been to the notorious caves, which I know are somewhere in England? I don't know if they're uh, <laughs> yeah. in close proximity, but, you know, where their rituals and orgies and all that stuff took place? Yeah, I mean, the caves are in Wickham, which unfortunately is quite far down south and I'm up north and because I was writing most of those parts when everything kind of was in lockdown I didn't get to go unfortunately and I I haven't been but I did watch a lot of programs about it there was a fantastic special I think it's ghost adventures special that they did from the caves years ago and um I just happened to be watching it and originally Anthony Pyle was like a corrupt priest Mm-hmm. But it was boring me. It was like this is kind of cliched, you know, the money grabbing priest who's kind of like, you know, swindled his parishioners. I was like, oh, we've all heard this a million times. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, so, but watching that ghost adventures definitely that night, something clicked. And I was just like, oh, this is actually a far more interesting story and I can do so much more with it. And from there, you know, they have some fantastic pages. If you have a look online at the caves themselves, the people who run it put a lot of time and effort into the stories that they put up there and the history and and the resources that you can access to get a bit more of an insight into it. But yeah, it was just so much more interesting. And I got to really sink my teeth into like things that they did, like Pluto and how they worshipped him, which is such a it's such an unusual take, isn't it? It's like they did such an individual job of just being kind of creepy and demonic and (laughs) 
like interesting. I just, I find it absolutely interesting. And he really brought the character to life. I think Anthony is definitely my favorite character in terms of the ghost. So yeah, I loved him. <laughs> it was yeah. great. Yeah. It's interesting how powerful people feel the need. I mean, I get, you know, like powerful people wanting to have some sort of fraternal bond with other powerful people. Cause I imagine when you're at the top, it's kind of lonely. Like what, how does that expression go? Is it, is it literally it's lonely at the top? Lonely or, at the top yeah. yeah. Something like that. <laughs> but it just, it gets so weird. Like, have you heard of Bohemian Grove, which is here in California? Oh, is um, that the one with the, uh, Moloch the owl? Yes, yeah. Yes. They worship. Oh, I, I don't know if they technically worship Moloch, but Whatever they do, I doubt they're actually trying to invoke some evil spirit. I think it's all for, you know, like cathartic ritual, you know, mm-hmm. just, uh, I mean, I don't, who knows? Maybe they are worshiping <laughs> Moloch the Owl God. <laughs> I've never been there. I've just seen the video. But uh, yeah, it seems like uh, when you get to that level of power, you can't really relate to anybody. So you get together with other powerful people and you do a lot of weird shit. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You got to do something on Saturday night, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> what does the man or woman that has everything do on a Saturday night? Oh, you Mark have no owl. idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you mentioned already, the character of Lisa Vaughn was kind of a psychic femme fatale. She was very interesting. She would wait for ships to dock at Lancaster's port and offer the sailors a bed for the night and a free palm reading. And then shortly after the sailors reboarded the ship and set out to sea, they would unexplainedly fling themselves into the ocean. So what I was curious about is, did those sailors become her slaves in the afterlife? Was there more to it? Or was she just a psychic that abused her power? Oh, that's a great question. With Lisa, it was just the idea of what if when someone's not even in your vicinity, they just have this incredible power to make you do something that you you know, absolutely don't want to do. Mm-hmm. So the fact that she could just make them, like you say, fling themselves off the ship and become part of her horde. I mean, so far in the book, she just summons them to kind of do a bidding and be a bit spooky. But yeah, she's got them for a reason. And I'm looking forward to kind of exploring her more. I'm sort of planning on doing a book two and hopefully a book oh, three. Okay. Where it goes, yeah, where it goes a lot more into the backgrounds of the ghosts and the reason why they were chosen. It's tough with her first book because, you know, there's only so many words that you can put in and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've got to cap it somewhere. So I had to take a lot out and, you know, not go as in-depth as I would have really loved to. But yeah, there'll be much more about Lisa in book two. (laughs) Okay, well, that makes me feel a little bit better about some of the other questions I have for you, because in my head, I'm like, well, did she just mean for it to be left a mystery? Or, But from what you said, (laughs) sounds like book two is going to expound on a lot of those. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. (laughs) Well, Cassie was an interesting character. She had the proverbial eye of the tiger when it came to competitive swimming and uh, didn't take shit off of anybody. So uh, (laughs) uh, attaching the ghost of Lisa Vaughn to Cassie was a very clever tactic because of the ways their association with water overlapped, no pun intended, with each other (laughs) and, um, and just a lot of symbolism involved there. So how did that close association evolve in the writing of the story? Was Cassie made into a competitive swimmer because of Lisa Vaughn's backstory? Because with the combination of those two, it made that one scene, which I'm not going to spoil anything, that one scene with Martin and the way those 
sailors interact within the whole scene. Just like the picture that was painted in my mind was masterful, like terrifying. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. That's, mm. that's brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, like you say, Cassie's so competitive and, you know, swimming is so tough. And in the book, she's training to swim the channel. And so I needed her to have something like that, that kind of physically showed the type of headstrong character that she needed to be. You know, she's the one girl in the house as well. She doesn't really get on with other girls that well. Loves the boys, but, you know, like you say, doesn't take any crap of anybody. So <laughs> she gets herself in a bit of trouble. And I think the thing about the ghosts and the people that they attach to, it had to be something that they terrorized them in a way that it wouldn't necessarily matter if the ghost was attached to one of the other people. It wouldn't matter as much. So like with Pete, his ghost kind of stopping him from going up in the fells when all he wants to do is go hiking and walking. And the same with Cassie, like the fact that the one place that Cassie kind of could shake off all of her sort of anxieties about other people and all of her sort of frustrations about, you know, not being able to get on with the other girls in the swim team and things like that. She kind of has nowhere to go now because, you know, Lisa is the one who's there, but she's also, you know, she's going to get her in the water. Mm. And um, I thought there was always that lingering thing as well of, you know, what if she got her in the channel? I mean, there isn't really much she can do once you're in the middle of the sea. And uh, <laughs> if, if the horde kind of rocks up when she's actually doing the swimming challenge, then uh, she'd be very screwed. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. not... <laughs> a lot worse so uh, I think it's that thing that everyone's always afraid of isn't it something coming up in the dark waters underneath you and you know what if that thing could just be anywhere and the dark waters could be you know the kitchen sink <laughs> and yeah. you're doing the washing up and she's just there <laughs> um, so yeah I think it plays on a lot of things like that with just kind of how vulnerable you are when it is your own personal reason for being that's being attacked and the only thing that you kind of enjoy is being taken away from you by a haunting so yeah it was uh I don't think a lot of other stuff would have bothered her you know she was that kind of character that like you say she's just so headstrong if it was any way else that Lisa was going to target her she wouldn't really have minded as much <laughs> minded yeah. as much. <laughs> probably not the right word but <laughs> well yeah I mean, I mean- one of my favorite elements of any kind of horror is psychological and so I really like I guess you could say like poltergeist activity and apparitions just kind of routinely freaking someone out is psychological terror. But also, like you were just describing, all of them had their thing that kept them sane and the ghosts specifically attacked that thing and made it to where they couldn't do that thing that kept them sane. So, yeah, I, The Suffering is an apt <laughs> title for the book because <laughs> they suffered in every realm, physically, psychologically, emotionally, definitely. Excellent. Hopefully it means that I'm doing my job right. If, uh, if that's what's coming across, <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I liked Uncle Caleb a lot. And I don't know why I probably maybe I have some hubris by saying this, but it might be a stretch. But I feel like you're familiar enough with that character that you may have based him on a family member. And if I'm wrong, where did his character come from? I love this question um, because <laughs> there's been a few people who've been like, oh, is this about that person? Is this about that person? And the thing is that I genuinely never kind of create characters based on people that I know. And I know a lot of people always kind of 
assume that that's what mm-hmm. you do. It's probably um, a good policy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he does have some characteristics. Like my mum was like, oh, is this based on your Uncle Mark? Um, yeah. <laughs> because he's like kind of caustic wit. And then, uh, you know, just that kind of deadpan humor was very him. And then my husband was like, is this kind of my dad? And I was just like, no, honestly, <laughs> it's not. Because he's like very blunt and direct and, and that kind of personality. But I think with... Caleb, it's interesting because he was the only one who I could really picture. You know, when you're sort of like daydreaming about, you know, oh, if this was ever made into a TV show or a movie or whatever. And we have a comedian over here. You might not have seen anything because I'm not sure if there's anything that's gone over to the US with him, but his name's Nick Helm. And um, he's just that look, that sort of hangdad look and the (laughs) straggly hair. He's like a little bit scruffy, rough and ready kind of guy. And so he kept coming into my head as I was writing him. So I think if there's anybody in real life who Caleb is like, it's definitely Nick Helm. And I think if it was ever made into a TV show, he would just be perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I always thought, you know, if I was a writer, I would base my characters off people that I knew. But then I started thinking, well, in order for a character to be compelling, they have to be kind of a pain in the ass or something <laughs> evil about them or some sort of issue or hang up or neurosis or something like that. So if you're basing so, them off of somebody with characteristics that are readily identifiable, like, and then you, <laughs> you maybe highlight a real character defect or add one, yeah. they're going to think, so you're saying that I am this way, really? I was like, yeah, maybe that's not, uh, maybe it's a good policy to not base your characters on people, you know? <laughs> Exactly. Like, oh, this is why that person hasn't spoken to me since February. (laughs) I don't, I never. (laughs) Yeah, my falling out with this person somehow relates directly to the publication date of my most recent book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, moving on with the characters, Tad was an interesting character. He was an engineering student that was working on a way to convert raw sewage into green energy. The problem was, is that he was strikingly good looking. So a lot of academics didn't take him seriously and girls interested in his looks found his talk of raw sewage very off-putting. And uh, (laughs) so what feelings were you attempting to evoke from the reader towards Tad by giving him this counterintuitive handicap? Well, I mean, I always find that, you know, if you ever see an article about a celebrity, you know, they may be going through absolute hell, but in the comments, you'll just see people like, oh, boo-hoo, you know, they have so much money and they're so good looking and, you know, they're not allowed to have a bad time, really. And it's a horrible attitude because, you know, everybody's just human at the end of the day and everyone's trying to get by. And just because you've had success, which, you know, people who are famous and film stars absolutely deserve but people just seem to take it as an excuse to tear them down or make it so unsympathetic to what's actually going on with them so I kind of wanted to play with that a little bit and just the frustrations I mean I can't imagine what it would be like to not be able to be kind of invisible like you know I can go into town and nobody bats an eyelid looking and stuff whereas you know someone who looked like Tad would be just you know, stared at and pestered and stuff. And, and he, he hates it. Like he'd rather be, you know, just an ordinary looking bloke, but he can't get away from it. And all he wants to do, like you say, is talk about his passion and his 
thing, which is um, his little sewage project, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't the biggest turn on. But I just I've had fun playing with that. The two sort of oppositions of him just wanting to talk about this and what you know people's reactions would mm. be to that kind of person just talking like that and how hard it would be to actually find your your true circle really so yeah he he was a lot of fun a lot of people really enjoyed tad which is nice because i like him a lot (laughs) yeah i mean he he has a point the first i think it's the first incident in the book of uh, a girl being off put by his talk of raw sewage is like well she asked what i do (laughs) this is is what i do i mean (laughs) am i supposed to lie (laughs) this is it and so it's like people have a certain expectation of him which i think a lot of people do as well Mm -hmm. like you hear about it from movie stars and things about how people get an idea in the mind of what kind of person they're going to be just because of the way they look and you know the fact that they're you know a movie star and it's not you know everybody's got their own personality it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside what's inside is unchangeable really so the two don't necessarily meet and um i just i found that a really interesting thing to kind of play with with him well a big part of the way the ghosts tormented the characters is with poltergeist like activity and some of it was more like sophomoric pranks <laughs> when yeah. it, when you get down <laughs> to it. So typical student house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the the ghosts are acting like frat boys and sorority girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so how do you approach writing poltergeist activity and strange apparitions and the like to make them not only scary, but in some instances set up a written jump scare? Because it's one thing to do it on film, but like, how do you write that? I think that's another reason why the haunted house setting is so effective because, you know, like the, there's a scene where Lance is just trying to cook and then the ghosts are just like, you know, it's the sort of terrorize the house just in general. And it's just near the beginning. So you just kind of getting an idea of what each ghost is like. But suddenly they're all out to play and just causing mayhem. And it's that feeling of, oh, my goodness, he just wants to cook. <laughs> <laughs> and um, like you say, there they are scampering around, doing the thing, causing mischief. And uh, of course, it's only the tip of the iceberg as to what they can actually do. But I think there is something really menacing about the little things, the footsteps of Connor when he's like running around the stairs and stuff. I mean, we've all heard creaks and cracks on the stairs that have made us be like, oh my God, who's that mm-hmm. in the house kind of thing? And there's nobody there. And of course, it's just the house settling or whatever. But there is something sort of more insidiously menacing about your own house, as we were saying before, just being a place of torment. And even those little tiny moments where you're just like, oh, what was that noise? And <laughs> Then if we did go to explore and something did jump out at you, I mean, I don't know what we do, but <laughs> <you always laughs> uh, it's like when you go and get a drink at night and you stood in the kitchen and then you just kind of torment yourself just thinking, what if I turn around right now and there's someone stood there and your brain just kind of does it, doesn't it? Without, <laughs> without you thinking about it, just torture ourselves even uh, when there's nothing there. So I think it's kind of easy, like the the jump scare thing, when you've got that domestic setting as well, you can start to slow it and lull it into a false sense of security and then just bam (laughs) there's some shit going down (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's fun yeah and listeners at home let me qualify that statement when i'm talking about 
the poltergeist activity and the sophomoric pranks, as she said, that's the beginning. They slowly gain power. It gets much worse. <laughs> it's That's not what they stick to. So uh, hold on to your seats for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they've got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a lot of uncertainty as to which ghost of which person was doing what and where within the house. Was the very dynamic evolution of the answers to those questions outlined, or did they materialize as you wrote the book? And can you tell us about your writing process in general, whether you're a semi-pantser or a strict outliner? Oh, definitely a pantser. Definitely. Like what I'll do is I'll kind of ruminate on an idea. So like a scene will come to me. So like I started writing it in a response to a short story call about divination. And so the idea of the original setting with, um, you know, the seance and the Victorian house was sort of born of me thinking about that story. And then it just kind of developed like, oh, what if this haunted house was in use now? Like, what would happen? Would the ghosts come out again? How would that be? And so, yeah, it's like I'll sort of toy a little bit, like pull out a little bit of a string every few days and just ruminate on the actual ideas. And then the characters kind of come to me. And so I'll just kind of watch them a little bit. But then it does take me a while to sort of get everything in place before I start. But I'll often just kind of do like a chapter here and then a chapter or a scene from later on. And like, Pete's museum scene. I can remember I wrote on my dinner at work just because it had come to me. So I didn't have the chapters, like the few chapters in between whatever it was. I'd previously been writing on it. And then suddenly I had this standalone scene with Pete that was just floating with uh, nothing before it, but it had to go in somewhere. So yeah, mm. definitely a panther. <laughs> <laughs> what amazes me how you can interweave I guess these little sub narratives just by pantsing, like you're able to pants that. I mean, as you write, are you taking notes just so you can refer back? Yeah. I mean, editing takes ages because you no. kind of kind of go back and tie up all the threads. <laughs> okay. And then so I'll be like writing down notes, just like, well, how can this be here if this is there? And, oh, you know, okay. so yeah, this is why it takes so long to edit everything because I just it, get it all down. Like, uh, as well, uh, you know, just type it away, <laughs> getting, it out, getting it out, what's kind of been played in like a little video in my mind and, and then tie up all the loose ends and, you know, research into this and that. And, you know, like, how would this, you know, burn or how would this happen in a house like this? And, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of things always come later and just tidy it up and make sure it all makes sense. It takes a few reads to catch them all as well, because <laughs> when you do do it like that and just do sort of chapters here and there, it can get a little bit out of hand. <laughs> yeah. Are you able to, as far as research, are you able to rely on Google or do you have to go to like, I know there's like Facebook groups where police officers and like medics and stuff like that will lend their ears for technical advice, stuff like that. Yeah, those kind of things are so great. And, you know, just sort of answers on Reddit and stuff can take you to places that you never even imagined. Like, oh, I could do that because that person's had that experience. That's interesting. And so, yeah, you can sort of take it from anywhere, really. I mean, I would be lying if I said that Google was my main source. I mean, like any writer, my <laughs> search history is just full of bizarre questions. <laughs> like, 
I think the most boring one that came out of the suffering was how big is a lift? Like, you know, and just to get the answer <laughs> of like the space inside. Uh, oh, the okay. Yeah. Thing. Sorry, mm. an elevator. I, yeah. I, I'm sorry because you got a US audience, but so like we call elevators lifts. Yeah. So I was trying to find out exactly how wide they were just mm-hmm. so I could write and see. But I was like, oh my God, that might be the most boring, <laughs> right? Like, write a search uh-huh. question I've ever seen in my entire life. How big is an elevator? God. <laughs> Yeah, I always, I always tell writers, invest in a VPN, because if they find your computer, they're either going to think <laughs> yes. you're a writer or a serial killer. <laughs> Absolutely. This is it. <laughs> well, they say that there is a little bit of a writer in every one of their characters. Is there a particular character that has a lot of you in them? And if so, which one and what do you have in common with them? Oh, I'd say I'm mostly out of the five of them, I would probably be a mix of Kyle and Lance. And I say that because, you know, I, I am quite practical myself. Like I like to think things through, get to the bottom of things. You know, I'm not really a fiery kind of character. You know, I don't sort of fly off the handle very much and sort of quite measured. So I think in that respect, those kind of character traits in Kyle were a little bit easier to write than some of the others. But the other one that seems completely on the opposite end is Lance, because I've had so much anxiety in the past and, you know, he worries so much. He finds it hard to be in an office setting because of all the personalities and he gets so sort of self-conscious and sort of nervous in his own shell kind of thing. Mm. And I've been very much like that in my life, which is why, you know, writing and freelance work that I do now suits me so well, because when you're that kind of personality and you do kind of get those anxieties, uh, <laughs> working from home is a, is a good shout. <laughs> oh God, yes. <laughs> yeah. If only, <laughs> if only I could do my day job from home. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, towards the end of the story, Kyle gets a guy from school that's experienced in paranormal investigation named Eldon to come to the house to check things out. And one of the ways he investigates is with an electronic device that produces an open frequency for a potential ghost to speak through a process known as EVP or electronic voice phenomenon. Have you ever participated in a paranormal investigation? And if so, did you experience anything unexplainable? And what do you think happens after death? Oh, that's a, that's a multi-layered uh... Question. You can take um, those one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't done a specific ghost hunt with the gadgets. Unfortunately, I would love to. So if there are any in my area, please get in touch and <laughs> let me know where I can find these things. But I have sort of stayed in a couple of perhaps haunted houses when I was a kid. Like there's Chingle Hall, which is quite a famous one. Um, it's got a, quite an interesting history and you know, there was uh, quite a lot of sort of poltergeisty things going on. One winter, my mum and my sister and I stayed in an old farmhouse because my sister was looking after the horses for the lady while she went away. And there was definitely something. I mean, I don't know what it was. I, I don't have the answers of, oh, it's definitely a ghost or it's definitely just... I mean, it could be anything like just something in the house, something making your inner ear go a little bit straight. I have no sort of definite answers as to how I feel about whether it is ghosts every time. But there's definitely some strange things going on there. 
I mean, in terms of the ghost thing and what happens in afterlife, I'm not really a religious person. I don't, I can't really join the dots on that so much. I think that's the Kyle's sort of practical side of it. I kind of feel like, I think that perhaps when we die, it is just black. There is nothing. And um, in a weird way, I find that more reassuring than, oh, yes, you know, you beamed up and then there's <laughs> people coming at you and teaching you lessons and sending you back down again and so mm. you can do it all again I just that is horrendous to me I don't, <laughs> like, when people say what's the scariest film that you've ever seen I watched um do you know that Disney soul I don't know if you've ever seen that mm. but it's that concept where you know they're all like this guy's sort of dead really and then his soul's kind of going into this place where people are choosing who's going to be their next family to jump into for their next life that comes after it oh i was i had to turn it off i was like it's freaking me out i don't get scared of movies but disney terrified the crap out of me i was like i don't, I don't even like to think about that i mean this life is just fine more than enough <laughs> um, so yeah I, don't, I think that's a bit of a strange answer i think a lot of people do find a lot of comfort in that and that's absolutely fantastic and you know i would never ever knock people who are religious and you know having that belief is is fantastic but it's just not something that brings me the comfort side of it. So maybe it's something that will come later in life or if I have a different kind of experience at some point. But at this point in time, I think it is just the black afterwards. Nothing really going on, but I guess we'll all find out one day. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> can't hang too much on it. For definite. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Aaron Beauregard? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, okay. So have you read uh, All Smiles Until I Return? No, I haven't read that one. Like, so, I, I love the Starpunk and the Slum and everything, but no, I haven't read that I one. I don't know if I should... I guess it's not a spoiler. It's basically, it deals with the afterlife. And the afterlife is pretty. You go to a nice place, but you're there. I'm sure, it was Aaron Beauregard who wrote this. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait for it. Wait for it. <laughs> you go there, and it's a nice place. It's pretty, but you're there for eternity. So after a few hundred years, you succumb to boredom. Boredom is the worst thing people experience in the afterlife. So they end up doing the most sick, depraved things that come to their head just to kill boredom. So it's there it's it a is. nice place full of people doing horrible shit. <laughs> and I mean, it, it gets more elaborate than that. It's a brilliant book. But yeah, <laughs> you should totally I read that. Definitely, I don't know why I missed that one. I'll, uh, I'll be getting straight on that. Thank you. <laughs> Well, one of the things I noticed was that when one of the characters was severely injured, the medics called out attention pneumothorax and proceeded with a needle decompression, which is a genuine condition and procedure. I know you said you did Google searches, but that's like oddly specific and very detailed. Like, I mean, was that a Google search just like what would happen if somebody had a collapsed lung or do you have some sort of first or second hand experience with that? Well, a couple of things like every good child of the 90s, we all watched Casualty every Saturday night here in the UK. Okay. Uh, kind of like a tame kind of Grey's Anatomy kind of thing. Oh, you know, it was okay. set in a hospital, but you could watch it as a kid. 
And there was so much that you kind of pick up from there. And the same watching Grey's Anatomy, you just, I mean, everybody's an armchair expert once they've watched programs like that, aren't they, for uh, injuries and, and blood and gore. But my mum was actually a nurse. and Mine I too. Was, <laughs> oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, I was the kid who was like an information sponge. So I would just be asking question after question after question after question and <laughs> really interested in the gory things. And, you know, so probably a, a bit of both. And then, yeah, I Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> but I did kind of, I knew that he was going to have that. And I liked the idea of, you know, the ghost being sat on his chest and that yes, kind of. that was very original. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And just giving that symptom, I just thought that would be quite a, a fun little thing to do. And the frustration of the paramedics and the like, oh, this usually works to fix it. <laughs> what the hell? Um, so yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever watch House with Hugh Laurie? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's another one. Very, you can learn a lot of stuff. If you ever look at the uh, credits, if I remember correctly, you'll see a long list of people with MD behind their name. So they have a very, uh, a lot of doctors as their technical advisors. I like it. I like the um, just solving the mystery, like because uh, that must be such a, a fascinating part of the job in real life. Just kind of, oh, these are the symptoms, and what the heck is it going on, kind of thing. I don't think they ever have a uh, ghost on chest. Must be the answer, mm. but <laughs> it's never lupus, um, though. I <laughs> <laughs> always suspect lupus. It's never lupus. <laughs> yeah, first the go-to every time. <laughs> Well, there's a young girl at the beginning of the book that causes some severe trouble at the end of the book. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Kyle got them all into trouble with kind of a childlike, reckless curiosity. At least that's the way I read it. The way you explained it was more that he had this connection with Lucius, which makes more sense. But uh, were you attempting to create a little irony by causing more trouble from someone with a childlike curiosity because they're an actual child and if not did the girl have some sort of connection with one or all of the spirits and if so which ones oh well i think she's probably like when we were talking about influences about who would be your most character that was like you i mean perhaps she might be a little bit like me. <laughs> I was so like that when I was a kid and just obsessed with creepy things. And, you know, if there was something fascinating, but gory, then I was fully on board. And um, so probably if I'd had the chance to cause some mayhem, like you say, accidentally and with just innocent curiosity, just bringing about this, uh, this terrible thing happening, <laughs> then it probably would have happened. So, but yeah, I think her only connection to the house is just the curiosity and um you know looking into it i mean i would be if there was a haunted house that had that kind of history in my town i would be there every day just looking at it like oh my god (laughs) so exciting (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i think you're right it is more about the sort of sudden mayhem brought about by someone who's supposed to be sweet and innocent and just uh but ends up being an absolute little terror like you say so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, I was the same way as as you were as far as, you know, being into creepy things. And it's funny, my mom is very religious, so she didn't want me watching horror movies, you know, didn't want me to be into anything creepy, Halloween, anything like that. But she was an emergency room nurse. So if I would make some crazy sick joke within those lines, she would laugh. It was so weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the gore is okay. It's just this stuff is against God or something like that. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. It's a divisive one, isn't it? For a lot of people, it's kind of hard to wrap their head around the uh, pleasure that people get from horror, I think, creeps people out. But like you say, with the nurses and things, see a lot worse every day, but, you know, just crack on with it. And I think have to have that humour, probably. Otherwise, it would be a, a really tough thing to deal with day in, day out. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, definitely need levity if you have that kind of job. It's funny, though, because some of the best horror writers that write some of the craziest stuff are very religious themselves, like not like mm. fundamentalists to where they're judging people, but like, mm. you know, go to church. Sure. Yeah, like Ron, um, Ron Kelly, excuse me, Ronald Kelly. <laughs> I just blanked oh, for some reason. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the biggest indie horror writers ever. And I'm like, who? <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's uh, said he's a believer. He goes to church and was raised that way. But like, who you read some of his stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but I suppose there is so much horror in the Bible, really, as well. It's sort of like the whole fairy tale thing as well goes hand in hand, just the storytelling has to have horror elements. So, you know, all the way through the Bible and all religious books, there is that element of extreme horror. I think there is just no getting away from it. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what it's based on, isn't it? I mean, hell is everyone's sort of ultimate nightmare. So yeah, they know all about horror. Yeah, <laughs> They're religious guys. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, not everyone makes it out alive. And if it won't cause any spoilers, can you tell us what kinds of things you have to consider in general within the story arc when it comes to deciding who will live and who will die? Well, I think with the ones in this book that go, <laughs> um, I knew it was happening. I think one of them is quite obvious. I think a lot of people have said like, oh, we kind of knew that person was like cannon fodder because of the way that they were. I think there may be a couple that are very, very different, but still fall into that kind of trope of, oh yeah, you're going to get it. So there's those two. And then one that I think does take a lot of people by surprise, so more towards the end of the book not quite at the end but you know he is a character that people kind of think is going to be one of the resolvers and one of the people who may be sort of finding the answers and guiding the kids out of this situation and then suddenly he's gone or, or she so yeah i think the plan my problem now is i know that there's got to be people going for the second book i'm not 100% certain about who. I think I've got an idea about who is not going to be going forward with the process of <laughs> <laughs> the second book. But we shall see. It's so fascinating hearing people who've read it, who their favorites are and who they really don't like. And of course, you know, they're all my little book babies, really. So I'm protective of them all. But unfortunately, <laughs> can't all stick with to the end, I'm afraid, uh, as it always is. So, yeah, we shall see. <laughs> you want to make an omelet? You got to break some eggs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you have multiple short stories published in numerous anthologies. Did the suffering begin as a short story? And how does the content of your short stories compare with the suffering as far as subject matter and mood? It did. It started as a short story, but it was just going to be sort of like the scene in the second chapter, which is like the Victorian um, seance, the original one where Lucius kind of originally called out the ghosts. And then it just, I thought, 
you know, I could really take this a lot further. My short stories are usually a bit more humor. I mean, there is a bit of humor in the suffering, I think. And that is kind of like my style and tone. Like I grew up reading Richard Lehman and um, I just loved that fact that you'd be in the grip of just something horrendous happening, you know, and then <laughs> you'd throw in a line that was just absolutely hilarious and, you know, just make you laugh out loud. And I think I love that kind of balance of the tension and the humor with the um, characterization as well. And so, yeah, I think my short stories, because you have to be a bit punchier and get to the point a lot quicker, that they are quite fast paced. And so, yeah, they're usually that kind of, uh, what, how would I phrase it? So like, whereas the suffering has a lot of time to kind of get things going and set the scene and just gently kind of build up to things going crazy uh, with the short stories, you've just got to jump right in there. So I think they are usually, yeah, a little bit faster, a little bit crazier, but a little bit funny and uh, full of gore and splatter punk. That's what I like. <laughs> nice. Nice. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> well, have you uh, ever written or thought about writing a screenplay or having the suffering option for a film? And with regard to the suffering being optioned for a film, who would be the best director for the job? Oh, I mean, I think every writer usually sort of daydreams about like, oh my God, imagine being on the red carpet. What would I wear if I was going to like a premiere <laughs> of this, if it was turned into a movie and who would play the characters kind of thing. So I think, yeah, I have daydreamed about that a hell of a lot. Probably spent far too much time daydreaming about that kind of thing before the book was even finished. <laughs> I should have been focusing on uh -huh. that. But, so I think, yeah, it would be a huge dream of mine to have that happen. In terms of directors, I think James Wan would do an amazing job of it because he's got that fantastic, you know, he's really good at that whole household setting, like the scenes in Insidious and places like that where the creep is the fact that it is just a normal room. Like I think is, I don't know, is she folding laundry or something when the little kids dance into the song and he sort of like suddenly appears and off he goes, I think would do those kind of little moments like you were discussing before where it is just the domestic that turns into like a crazy little moment of like almost a cheeky kind of thing but then it has that underlying terror so I think yeah he would be absolutely fantastic another one who would just be like incredible would be Mike Flanagan I think because he is so excellent at doing the whole conversational side of it and I think that's one thing that I really enjoyed during this book, the interactions between the characters and the conflicts and just the different personalities coming together. And I think in like The Haunting of Hill House and, you know, uh, Blind Manor and, and all of his movies as well, like he does that so well, just the interactions between people and how they bounce off each other, I think. So one of those two would be absolute dream team. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about James Wan when you said that He's really good at taking a setting, a scene where there's absolutely nothing wrong, nothing scary about it, but he'll just tweak one tiny little thing. It's kind of like a very clean room, like everything's put away, everything's nice and neat, it's vacuumed, but if the bed's not made, the whole place looks like a pigsty, right? 
Yeah. So he just, the entire setting is fine. He does one thing and it just makes it creepy somehow. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I think that he would be quite suited to it. Hopefully, if that's not too like big headed of me, like, oh, no. it's good <laughs> for him and Jason doing, but you know. Well, I wasn't putting limits on it. Like, what? who would be the best? That was, <laughs> You're allowed to pick whoever you want. <laughs> but yeah, dream scenario, I think he would just be, I mean, it goes without saying that you'd do an amazing job. But yeah, I think with the things that, we've been discussing today he just does that kind of thing so perfectly so yeah mm. him all the way <laughs> well so i saw a uh, picture of you with your book in one hand and a bottle of champagne in the other so <laughs> yes. i look like look like it was a good day <laughs> so. oh, it was it was a crazy day like it's so bizarre that was the day that it came out and so my mum came up and brought the champagne bless her and because you know it had just been something that i'd been going for and gunning for my entire life I never wanted to do anything else except get a book published and so it was just it was a bizarre day she came and kept me sane and I think the first run that went out had like a little formatting issue and so there was the stress of that and trying to solve that and mm -hmm. so it was a bonkers day but we went for a walk and uh, she <laughs> kept me calm and uh, yeah we've got the champagne and just uh yeah, try to just process it really. But yeah, it was a really nice moment and it was nice to be able to share it with her as well because I know that she's been sort of watching me over the last sort of 30 years or whatever, just <laughs> <laughs> desperately trying to be a writer. So yeah. I think it was nice for her as well. So I'm assuming she's read it. Oh, yes. Is she, yeah. is she a fan of horror or was she reading it she, because... She's not. She would say she's a fan of me. Yeah, <laughs> not okay. horror. That's what I was curious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she did enjoy it. She, she did genuinely enjoy it, which she was very surprised about. But no, she's not a horror fan. She's never really understood my kind of, sort of <laughs> lifelong, ever since I was a kid, just going for the horror and the horror movies and my little gore, gory little obsessed me. <laughs> she's not really been on board, but yeah, always supported it. So yeah, she's been absolutely brilliant. So was she like, what was the name of the little girl at the beginning? Uh, Amelia. Amelia. So you were like Amelia. Was she like the mom that was that was like, MJ, will you stop? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, long suffering. Just, oh my God, not this again. Because <laughs> yeah. I would have been asking the questions at that age. Mm -hmm. uh, very little kid, just, you know, a little bit gobby, a little uh, bit like trying to get all the answers. And I think like we went around the London dungeon when I was a little kid and I'd be the, the little kid who's going up to the actors just like, what's this? What's that? <laughs> like, <laughs> asking all the questions and yeah. getting under the feet kind of thing uh, but yeah she was probably definitely the long-suffering mother just trying to usher me away from <laughs> i'm so sorry sir <laughs> exactly yeah exactly <laughs> she's always like this oh my yeah. god <laughs> well what was the most difficult part of writing the book people usually have the same answer but i, I would still like to hear it <laughs> part like I, said, I think for me it was actually the fact that I couldn't do more in terms of exploring the ghosts and things because then it would have just a have turned into a completely different book than the one that I knew it needed to be if I was gonna fulfill this thing of just write what you want to read kind of thing it would have taken it down such a different kind of road I think and a new sort of the underlying story really had to be about the students rather than the ghosts even though they're a massive part of it as well and that was the risk with putting too much in about the ghosts as well it kind of became about them and not about the main protagonist so that was always a, a balance that I did find really difficult because 
everybody knows the ghosts are the most fun part of it mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're the most fun part to write as well. But yeah. there has to be the story there and the whole reason behind the story and where it's going. So yeah, I'd probably say that for me. So I am excited to hopefully have the opportunity to do a second one, if not a third one and, and just carry it on and explore them a little bit more and not leave people with, you know, questions about the origins, why they were picked for these individual character traits you know in the original seance and just delve into that side of it a bit more so that'll be really good awesome well like i said earlier you've had multiple short stories published before this when did you first start writing seriously with the intent to publish and what was going on in your life at the time and i guess the reason i'm asking what was going on in your life at the time was there some sort of inciting event that was like all right i am doing this (laughs) Um, well I think as well like that whole thing I was saying before about when I got a little bit older and you know was a bit more self-conscious and you know anxiety kicked in like I actually had to drop out of university because of it because like I had to get the bus to university and I'd end up just getting off the bus like halfway between my house and the uni because you know it was just I don't know what was going on but you know it, it was a pretty difficult time so that thing of just being at home and being able to be at home was a huge thing and as I said all always sort of idolized, you know, Richard Lehman and all the usual horror writers and just thought, wow, that would be the best job in the world. I mean, come on, who doesn't love just sitting and coming up with horrible stories? Uh (laughs) So yeah, I think that's a a good question because when I really did start thinking that this is what I do need to focus on, it probably was sort of geared on how can I pay some bills if I'm stuck at home kind of thing as well. So yeah, it was uh, an interesting path to be on. Kind of difficult at that time, but I went back to uni, uh, the open uni that we have over here in the UK that allows you to get your degree when you're older. So you can kind of study part time and, and do it that way. So uh, did eventually go back and do it when I was, I think I was like 30 six or something when I got it so mm-hmm. yeah it was uh, it was nice to kind of put a full stop in that and just think yeah it doesn't matter now like that mm-hmm. I had to drop out in the past it doesn't matter <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't change it because if it has had a bearing on me doing the writing then you know it was uh, all good <laughs> yeah so what time period would that be oh that was so it would have been about mid 2000s no just 2000 early 2000s mid 2000s okay so, All right. yeah. <laughs> well, do you write on a schedule or only when you're inspired? And where does it <laughs> where does inspiration usually come from? Um, whenever I try and write on a schedule, it does not work out. Like I say, I am a terrible pantser and inspiration usually just comes for me to be able to sit and write. I think if I was one of those people who was like, right, every day at this time, you're going to sit down and you're going to do this many words it just wouldn't come out how I'd want it to. So I do have to ruminate on an idea for a while until I can sort of see it playing out in my head and then just write it down. And I always kind of type really fast because it's like you kind of watching it in your head and just kind of following these characters around like, oh my God, what are they doing now? (laughs) Um, You know, and writing down what they're saying to each other and stuff. And then, like I say, tidy it up later spend hours tidying it up afterwards (laughs) definitely not much by way of discipline um, over here I'm afraid (laughs) well where does that inspiration usually come from is there a particular activity you're doing or is it just as random as random can be 
sometimes I'll be watching, you know, uh, an actor or an interview with a musician or something, and they'll give me a spark of an idea for a character just because of the way they are. And then someone just pops into my head and, and becomes this character all of its own, um, or something that someone said that has twigged something or, you know, if I'm watching a history program and there's something usually gory, like I say, that <laughs> takes my interest or pricks my ears up, then that will be it. But I usually only ever get the big inspiration when I'm trying to relax. So it's always like you just settle down into a nice hot bubble bath with a book and a glass of wine. And then instead of reading the words on the book that I've brought specifically to read during my downtime, like these scenes will start coming into my hair. So yeah, that's the end of the uh, relaxation period. Out of the bath we get, and, you know, <laughs> get to the computer. So yeah, it's, uh, it's usually when I'm trying to relax that I get the best ideas and inspiration, unfortunately. <laughs> Where's the weirdest place? You say you're talking about a musician, something like that. Where would you say the weirdest place you've gotten a story idea? Oh, the weirdest place. Is that too weird? I was thinking today, I, I kind of went back to an idea I'd had about a story set in a hostel because um, <laughs> a few years ago, me and a friend, we went to watch a performance of Les Mis in Edinburgh and um, her dad had arranged it all. And uh, he was like, okay, yeah, I've booked us a hostel. And I was like, a hostel? Oh my God. <laughs> like, you know, I, I just never occurred to it. I was like, yeah, we're going to a premiere in, right? We're going to be like in a nice cozy bed and individual rooms kind of stuff. And he was just like, nope. I booked us this hostel, but it was ace. It was on um, the hill, you know, the big hill in Edinburgh. And like all the rooms were sort of like painted with different creatures. So you knew where you were going. And it was just like such an interesting setup. And I'd never sort of been anywhere like it. So, you know, because as I say, with my, the issues that I had when I was about 19 and stuff, like I wouldn't have been the kind to go traveling on my own, even though I would have loved to. I wish mm. now that I had been able to, because I do love traveling. But yeah, the whole backpacking across Europe and stuff, it wouldn't have been something that I would have been able to do at that time. So yeah, I'd never had the hostel experience and uh, <laughs> it's sparked a lot of, uh, yeah, I guess horror and uh, also <laughs> like great stuff. <laughs> I, the word hostel is synonymous with torture for me. <laughs> those oh, those yes. movies ruined hostels for me. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, they are absolutely, yeah. <laughs> of course my horse. <laughs> I love it. They're great. <laughs> well, what is your writing medium and atmosphere? Well, I mean, usually I'm covered in bath bubbles and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just grab my laptop and, you know, wherever I am, sort of. What was the name uh, of that screenwriter? Do you know who I'm talking about? Old school screenwriter wrote all of his screenplays in the uh, tub. Oh, yes, I did know who you mean, but I can't think. No, I'm sorry. I interrupted yeah. you. Go ahead. Go no, ahead it's all right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If I wasn't so clumsy, I would love to be able to take my bathtub, uh, my bathtub into my computer, my computer into my bath <laughs> and just write in there. But yeah, that would not end well. I know Kindles are waterproof now, which is fantastic. Like opened up my world to being able to oh, read Kindle oh, okay. in the bath. But yeah, we haven't quite got there with the Macs, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, I would never. I don't even I don't even bring my Mac with me. I mean, it's a laptop. It's supposed to be portable. Mm -hmm. I just can't bring it anywhere with me. <laughs> Too paranoid. <laughs> yeah, precious cargo. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you do anything outside of reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Oh, that is an interesting one. Um, I mean, I'm nuts about like horror movies, of course, which is a little bit sort of uh, cliche. I love to sort of observe it. I've always been an observer. Like 
nature and things around me, like I'll notice things. And, you know, if there's one thing slightly askew in a room, I'll notice it immediately. Whereas like my husband, I could move the whole room around and he probably wouldn't even know it <laughs> for like three days and just yeah. be like, oh, did that not used to be over there? <laughs> you know, I'm just kind of like an observant person. And I love to just like get out and about and, you know, a bit of nature sort of rambling and stuff. But I just love spotting interesting things out and about. And I think nature is another one that has so much horror as well as the wonderful <laughs> things. Like we've got the saga at the moment of uh, fledglings and birds nesting and uh, all the trauma that comes with that, mm-hmm. with the predators and, you know, just uh, how brutal it all is. So yeah, I think there's horror inspiration everywhere. <laughs> if you, <just, laughs> you look for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Trumbo. That's the screenwriter I was trying to oh, think yes. of. Trumbo. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, so kind of counter to what I just asked you, is there anything that you avoid because you feel it stifles your creativity? Oh, well, I know that I've got that introverted kind of personality where if I'm around a lot of people, even the perfectly nice people, people who I love, you know, it just drains me. I find it quite difficult to have sort of prolonged periods with lots of people. Is that just the hyper awareness all the time and, you know, listening to everything and taking everything in with a writer's eye? Maybe it's just like draining. I don't know. But yeah, I wouldn't plan to write say like the day after I've been to a wedding or something like that because I know that I will be kind of wiped out for a few days Mm. you just need to recharge your batteries Mm. and get back to a bit of a center again so yeah I think that definitely big events and big places with lots of people to meet and things usually kind of do stifle it a bit Mm. do you find that your creativity flows a little bit more unhampered at different times of the day Like, would you be best to just do it first thing in the morning or are you a night person when you're? It varies, honestly, for me, that's another reason why I can't set a schedule for myself. I mean, (laughs) often I'll try and I'll be, especially, you know, now that I'm working from home as a freelancer, you know, you have got your whole day to plan exactly how you want to do things. And even when I try and just say like, right, nine o'clock to this time, we'll do this. And then that time to that time, I'll write. But like I was saying, if I don't have that spark and I don't have that feeling, it just ends up being frustrating. So it does have to be a bit more spontaneous for me Um, (laughs) so it could be any time any time of day (laughs) gotcha well which of your writing influences diverges the most from your own genre and which aspects of their writing do you utilize in yours oh that is a fantastic question so judy bloom obviously was massive with kids, especially (laughs) young girls in America. But I mean, she was huge over here as well. And um, so I first was given a Judy Bloom book by my nana when my parents were getting divorced. And it was just, it's like, I loved it. I loved how she did the dialogue more than anything. And it's like, even in scenes where there's not very much going on, I mean, the books for young kids about, you know, going to school and, you know, picking out a top or, you know, getting juice from the cupboard, you know, it's all very basic kind of generic stuff, but she writes it in such a way that you do want to read on. And I just loved reading her books. I think she's absolutely phenomenal. And like she did a few grown up books as well. (laughs) One of them is called Summer Sisters. And there's so much natural conflict in that. I just 
that has been such an inspirational book in terms of how to actually write people and not make it be a either too good to be true because there are flaws that she's writing but then they're so relatable as well so I think she does that so brilliantly so yeah she's not one for horror I don't think I don't think I've ever seen any horror in her there's one she did actually that has a plane crash at the beginning that's true and I think it's set in a town where there's three plane crashes in the space of a few weeks and yeah that was scary actually so yeah I'll Mm. take that back that was terrifying (laughs) yeah she can do horror (laughs) she lets it come out every once in a while (laughs) exactly she's she's got it in her belt that's for sure she knows what she's doing Well, I saw a post, or I guess I should say I saw the post where you had said that you quit your day job and are now a freelance writer, yeah. uh, which you have alluded to a couple of times. Was it difficult to take that leap? And how did you know you were ready to take it? Well, I had been working quite a few of the different jobs that I've had have been quite depressing, actually. They've been the, <laughs> like I was a divorce clerk for a while. So that was uh, not exactly huge fun. A divorce what? Um, a divorce clerk. So like working in a court, like a county oh. court and helping out people to fill in the divorce paperwork oh, and things like that. So that was, <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. that was not great. And then um, this last job that I had was dealing with complaints in a university. So again, oh it was God. like, you know, yeah, just hearing a lot of stuff that you don't really want to hear. And of course, it was all about like the student welfare and things, but there's only so much you can do. So I was kind of getting a bit beaten down by it. And then COVID came along. And aside from all the horrendous things that came with it, there was this sudden opening up of the opportunity to kind of look into freelance work and see what's out there. And so I did like a copywriting course during COVID when we were not allowed to go into work and then sort of utilized that, put myself out there on Upwork and became copywriter pretty much permanently for a company who writes tech articles. So Mm. it's like editing mainly. We do a lot of articles about VPNs. So you mentioned them before. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Don't let the government um, see your search history, writers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you uh, if you are looking for VPNs um, and you look online, there's a chance that I might have had something to do with the article. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, what kind of effect do you think AI is going to have on literature? I had on... Um, Tananarive Du, who is a writer, but also a college professor. And she uh, she got multiple papers that were supposed to be on books that she wrote, which were just completely off. And it wasn't until she plugged that information into chat GPT herself that she realized, oh, this is where they're getting this from. <laughs> oh, it's scary. I think it's it's kind of, it is worrying, but I, like I was having a conversation last night about it with um, my husband and he was like, well, he said, like, I don't think it will ever fully be something that people can do because there isn't the heart and there isn't the kind of consciousness that comes with writing a book or writing a story. There has to be that thread throughout that comes from the writer's experience and the writer's voice that comes through. And so it frightens me and I don't like it. I absolutely hate the idea that people are submitting books that have not been written by them. And then to take that as a really glorious thing and to you know and to get your degree when you haven't actually written any of the essays I don't know it's where is the feeling of accomplishment I just think it's a bit sad and yeah I don't really like it but I thought that was a really good point that he made that you know I hadn't really thought that yeah maybe it will be easier to spot in terms of 
creative writing than people are worried about because there isn't going to be the element of heart in it. And uh, I thought that was a pretty good point. But yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. Don't like it one bit. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it either. And and you know, one no. thing one thing I was thinking about that I talked with a gentleman I interviewed the other day it just kind of popped into my head was, as you were saying, there's no heart in it, but also computers, you know, obviously they're capable of screwing up, you know, their firmware gets corrupted or whatever software is running buggy or whatever. But if they are working correctly, they are exact. They are machines. They work linearly, pragmatically, and exactly. Humans Mm -hmm. are flawed. All the time. The most (laughs) sane person you know is extremely flawed. So that's where creativity comes from. It doesn't come from the efficiency of a machine. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, that's one of the things I was thinking about. Like, yeah, I just I just don't think creativity. I mean, you know, I know engineers use detailed equations to problem solve. But that mm-hmm. that's to find a yes or no or, you know, an exact answer. Creativity is very subjective. Exactly. So. And it's like you kind of feel like there'd be no surprises. Yeah. Like nobody ever surprised you again mm-hmm. because, you know, like you say, it's just so rigid and regimental that there isn't the opportunity for that fascinating new perspective or new book that comes out of nowhere where mm. you're just like, I've never read anything like this before. This is crazy. It just takes away any opportunity for that. And uh, it's pretty sad. Mm. Well, so my fiance and I are going to watch Hell House LLC, which I understand is your favorite movie. So if you can do it without giving any spoilers, can you tell me why it's your favorite movie? Oh, this is going to be tough. And oh, I could have mentioned Stephen Cognetti, who's like the director of that in my directors as well. I'd be honored if he did something like that because oh, okay. uh, he's fantastic. What he did with that movie was just incredible. And no found footage isn't everybody's cup of tea, but I think the Hell House LLC just does it so brilliantly. It feels so real and the actors are just excellent. And I think it's like the little expressions that they pull, like my favorite character is Alex and he's a bit of a contentious character. I won't give anything away, but it's like his sort of exasperated little expressions that he pulls throughout. And, you know, there's some secrets going on in the house. It's just to kind of briefly, it's uh, like a haunted house event. So they're, you know, bringing in actors to kind of bring this haunted house to life <laughs> for people to kind of pay money and then troop through and like we were talking about before and it's sort of like the setup of the haunted house and the days before but the house that they're in is actually has nasties in it and uh, <laughs> it all goes horribly wrong but um, i hope you and your fiance enjoy it because uh yeah it's a really great movie awesome <laughs> well what is the life of mj mars like outside of writing Oh, um, well, if I'm out and about doing stuff, it'll be gigs and festivals. I love live music, rock music. Gigs you know, yourself or going to see others? Going to, sadly, not, not oh, okay. performing. That would, that would be so fun. But yeah, no, I love going to see bands live. And yeah, I had a busy year last year. I think all my old favorites are coming back at the moment as well. So it's like, got the chance to see Fall Out Boy and we're going to see Blink and MCR and all those ones from 20 years ago that are coming uh-huh. back. It's just like, oh, loving it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't go to download this year, but I went last year and it was just amazing. 
We went to Slam Dunk instead. So it was like the offspring, Billy Tallum, uh, Zebra Head or Zebra Head. <laughs> <laughs> the American way, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was, well, it was great. I think British English <laughs> is the true English. We've screwed it up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, I think when the band themselves call themselves Zebra Head, <laughs> I can't come in and say, actually, no, it's Zebra Head. I think you're fine. <laughs> But yeah, I love that vibe. I love going to festivals. I think there's nothing like it. It's just fantastic. So, but on the day to day, just, yeah, nothing really too exciting. Like I say, I'm just kind of at home. I'll wander about Lancaster because it is sort of a historic city. So we have like cobblestones and we've still got all the old lanterns and things like that. So it's a nice place to kind of just have a, a wander around. Like sometimes you'll turn a corner and you'll just be like, God, I could have gone back in time to like 1800 right here because <laughs> the houses just look so old fashioned. And, and then there's like the castle, like I said, just on the little hill down the road. And yeah, it's a nice place. I really do like living in Lancaster. So yeah, kind of have a bit of an explore, do a bit of yoga and stuff like that. And yeah, try and get some inspiration to write something when I'm not in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say nothing exciting. I seem to remember something about skateboarding. Oh, Are you, yes. you tearing shit up on the board? What's happening? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, yeah. I would, I'm a little bit more careful now because I turned 40 in January. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, last year, I had a couple of spills, like nothing major. But, you know, you do think now, oh, mm. there is a serious risk of breaking my hip here. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> wish, wish that I'd got into it when I was a kid because yeah. where I grew up, nobody skateboarded. And like, I wasn't that confident kind of person who would go out on my own. I'd have probably have got beaten up every day if I did and had the board <laughs> taken off me and, um, you know, smashed in front of me and stuff. It wasn't the place to go out skateboarding, unfortunately. And then during lockdown, again, it did me a lot of favors because I was just like, right, I'm going to be stuck here. I'm going to learn all of the things that I wanted to learn when I was a teenager, but was too self-conscious or didn't get the opportunity to. My husband's a really good skateboarder and he's a fantastic teacher. So he just taught me. So we went out every night and um, like we'd sort of start with obviously basic skating around and then Ollie's on the grass. And then we got like rubber kind of matting and then took it on to learning how to do it on the matting. And and then UK winter came with lots of rain and you can't skateboard in the rain. So <laughs> yeah, that, but yeah, I love it. It's so great. And once you have actually done it, it's crazy how that muscle memory is there then. And you do just step on the board. I mean, when I was first learning, it was so nerve wracking, even just setting off. And we've got these videos of me because like we'd be tracking my progress and I'd just be like, <sighs> like gearing up to go. Like it was this <laughs> massive thing. And all I was doing, it was literally like rolling and it's like four <laughs> but it just it, it feels like a big deal it's a lot scarier when you're up there especially oh, yeah. like dropping in as well I it's I always thought yeah dead easy I'll do it in no time and you get up there and it just feels like you're on a mountain and you're just like I am literally gonna die <laughs> if I try this so yeah it's good it's exhilarating and fun really good exercise really good for your balance so no matter what age you are, guys, if you're listening and you've ever thought, I would actually like to skateboard, then just do it. Get yourself a good teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, go for it. It's a really, really, really good fun. Yeah. When I was younger, it definitely would have been smarter to go from the grass to a rubber bat instead of starting off on oh. the concrete. <laughs> when you're a kid, just do it though, don't you? And yeah. you're not bothered and it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, like Jamie, my husband, he's got so many like broken wrists yeah. and injuries that kind of come back from the skateboarding mm. from just 
throwing yourself into it. But yeah, I do wish that I had been able to do that when I was a kid because yeah, it would be a lot less distance. I mean, I'm only five foot two, so there isn't that much distance to the ground anyway. But yeah, it would have been a lot easier, I think. Awesome. Well, MJ, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much. I've loved all of your questions. It's been really, really interesting to think about it and and get your perspective. So that's been fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, so as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Um, Well, um, if you're in the group Books of Horror online, The Suffering made it into the top 32 of the brawl which is nice. like uh, the author brawls mm-hmm. <laughs> so i'm going against john durgin which is like oh I, he's just amazing i don't think i'm going to make it through round <laughs> one against him because he's absolutely brilliant but it's just such an honor to even be in it and if you love horror and you love indie books get yourself down to books of horror if you're not already in that group because they are fantastic and all of the writers we love chatting with you and and you know meeting people who enjoy reading them so i'd say definitely do that and also my story monastery blood moons coming out in the next negative space by dark peninsula press so they are always fantastic eric is an absolute pleasure to work with who's the editor and um yeah i know it's going to be a great compilation of really fun spooky stories so yeah plug that one as well (laughs) nice all right well listeners at home all links are in the description and mj thank you again for joining me oh thank you so much Vince. it's been great And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the free email newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where I will be joined by a filmmaker that transcends the horror genre with the agony of grief. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always... Thank you for listening. See you next time. I think it's coming. The time is near. Can't you hear it? The sky is falling. It's dangerous. Come in for us. I've got a fear. I just need.